coughing in the background. <laughs> yes, this will be a recording session where one or either of us will be co- heard coughing at various moments. It's fine. We shall manage. We have holed up into... We, we have two main big rooms in this flat. Our bedroom and the sort of dining room, lounge, sitting room, study area thing. Mm-hmm. It sounds big. It's it's a flat, so we basically... All spaces are here. And we have funneled ourselves into here, so now it's our bedroom as well because we don't want to be in the bedroom where uh, Apple is based because... Mm-hmm. Sarah lost one of her previous hamsters to, like, just him catching a cold, and with something like this, it's sort of like, okay, we, like, considering how transmissible it is, don't want to take any chances on that, so we've been, like, basically having a long-term distance relationship with our pet hamster. Yes, this is a sentence we say. (laughs) It's, this is the skills youngest household. You just gotta learn to adapt to all of these strange new phenomenon that comes around on when your world gets turned around, flipped upside down by COVID. Um, I, but I didn't even think that, um, that hamsters could catch COVID, but I guess I don't, I don't know about transmissibility between us and other. See, we've never, never really sort of like, it's, I don't know. I think Sarah would probably be better equipped to have heard some anecdotal stuff about how pets have been with COVID. Mm-hmm. But we, for what we know is that I think certain uh, small mammals, like just rodents, etc., they can get some human colds and things mm-hmm. like that. And it can be something that will knock them for six. And when I say that, I mean, they'll actually die Mm. so and as was the case with one of uh, Sarah's uh, pet hamsters many years ago and with that in mind and considering a lot of the sort of flu-like symptoms of COVID we've just decided maybe it's not the case but we just don't want to take any chances with that yeah yeah they can okay so Sarah has even seen some uh, evidence saying that yes it does actually have similar dangers so we are like you know we wear disposable gloves when we leave food out for him and we are just kind of keeping a wide distance fish are all right they seem to be absolutely fine we've also (laughs) by the way this all happened while we were you remember last time we talked we were setting up a new fish tank because Mm -hmm. of the dangers of the other one yeah we hadn't finished with that while when sarah first came up positive so you know, it, it's been a topsy-turvy week here, so uh, we... <laughs> bless you, Sarah. Um, so we're all holed up here, so for this, like, back bit, there will be extra sound effects. It's mm-hmm. it's texture, is what we will call it. Oh, and I will keep us sort of focused, but uh, it is very good to see you. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the update. That's all you're getting. Uh, like, I'm keeping the wind or like as like putting several filters on to make sure that nothing is going through this uh this connection we have between us between these worlds here but yes it's uh can confirm covid sucks balls Mm. Mm. it's frustrating because it's like it feels like this is um between you 
I forget who else is talking with somebody else on the Discord. Sharon's sister, I think. Sharon's uh, sister. And her partner as well, I think, uh, they had it. And I just saw that uh, Stephanie Sterling. I've, yeah, exactly. I don't follow, I don't follow uh, Sterling so much. Have they dropped Jim from their name or entirely? Or is it still Jim Stephanie Sterling? Um, it's still Jim Stephanie Sterling, I think, mm-hmm. at least partly because of um, branding and legal issues and everything like that. But sure. at this point, even though they're they're um, associating with pronouns they them, mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, listening to Podquisition on a regular basis, um, Kate and um, suddenly forgetting Conrad, Kate and Conrad almost re- almost exclusively refer to them as Steph now. Okay, as, yeah. As as opposed to Jim, yeah. So, no, more than fair. Anyway, um, I will continue catching up with you uh, via text once this is done. But okay. I think I will be uncharacteristically focused on this and insist that we crack on with the remaining things while my throat survives. Today's been good. I feel like almost as if I'm in the clear, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I haven't been podcasting with my other secret podcasting partner uh, for the duration of this, so I don't know how uh, this will manage, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it'll, it'll be entertaining. You we shall the, manage. You got some tea for your throat and stuff? I have water. You have water? I, okay. I, I've recently got back onto tea, but for a number of days there, the Britishness of me was completely like siphoned out. I <laughs> We couldn't really stand to look at tea, mm. much less... We never lost our smell or taste, really. We just, like, we were a bit of... We were collective puddles, and mm. I... my. I have a nice armchair that has been my base of operations and I shall return there once this is over. And, uh, yes. Okay. Good stuff. <laughs> so we've got, as you say, we've got F left. Um, I want to put our conversation about the music after that. We'll keep that short and sweet. Um, mm-hmm. and then we have all of four, four, a B and C. So shouldn't take too long. Sure. All right. My final thoughts are on the cinematic nature of the end of this chapter. This part one and the metatext of the propaganda that Truth has crafted for our Team Steam. She put a lot of work in trying to make a story that would inspire hope in the bastion of humanity left on this continent editing out the complicated messy bits and trying to offer up what she considered an idealized version of the heroes for others to partake of. But for us, the audience, the messy bits do not detract. We accept our heroes for all their flaws, and it makes them better to us in some ways. These are not paragons, but people trying to do, as the final words of this chapter say, something right. And this echoes to us the words of Nathaniel Curtis all the way back in the cartographer's handbook about how he cannot abide a paragon. We are behind the scenes and know the measure of our heroes, and they give us hope in spite of the fact that they are not perfect. 
perhaps even because they are not. Our characters not having to be perfect to not only want to make a positive difference, but indeed set out to actually do something about it, is what makes all the difference. It says to us that we don't have to be the perfect person, or even the perfect versions of ourselves to be able to try. And the story, for all the trepidations of the mission ahead, at, that it's laid at our feet, it's saying that these characters have a chance of accomplishing what they are setting out to do. This is not a fool's errand or a desperate final attempt. This is an enterprise made through collaboration and the backing of many. Make no mistake, these are still remarkable people. They have been shown to already be capable of feats of bravery and genius thinking. They are certainly characters we can feel comfortable in labeling as heroes in that Greek pantheon slash a superhero connotation mm. of the word they fit the bill mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that within the context of stories about heroes that the crew of Steamheart and the broader collective of new century protagonists aren't people who have suffered trauma or deal with issues of profound uncertainty in the worlds they find themselves in the path forward is really clear, and they have to do their best to figure out things as best they can. The reason the end of chapter 12 is as inspiring as it is, is because in spite of all that context we know about the... <coughs> gonna take that sentence. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm also coughing. Mm -hmm. um, the path forward is really clear, and they have to do their best to figure out things as best they can. The reason that the end of chapter 12 is as inspiring as it is, is because in spite of all that context we know about the inner lives of these characters, that for one shining moment, the path ahead really does seem clear. It is very much reminiscent of a collection of, you know, the four hobbits resolving to make the journey to Mordor within the Fellowship at its founding at Rivendell, and the feeling of triumph and certainty that Howard Shaw infuses that moment with. Mm. And we'll definitely address the music in a second, but it... Hmm. There's a... A line that I recall, one that I, I don't remember if we brought up in past discussions, uh, being that I kept throwing concepts from Star Trek Deep Space Nine at you, but mm -hmm. one of the comments that Captain Sisko makes at one point in regards to things being more complicated out on what he terms as the actual frontier where they're so far away from earth is that it's things are complicated and it's easy to be perfect. It's easy to be. I'm trying to remember exactly the way he phrased it where they are. It's not paradise like it is back on earth where everything's figured out and there is no um, lack for resources. There's no lack of housing. There's no reason for pain. It's easy to be a paragon, so to speak, in paradise. Mm. All of our heroes have not 
don't even have the supposed paradise of the modern era with all of its benefits of technology mm. and infrastructure. Right. Obviously, part of that is a little bit of myth-making, too, because you and I live in this world, and we know that there are lots of problems. It's just easier to... It. it we do just, live in a society, it is true. Yeah, we do live in a society. It's just, in comparison, a lot of the characters in New Century are dealing with a lot more hardship, a lot more pain and grief that they've all been through, as a result of this slow-moving disaster that is the Wendigo and its mm. effects on the world. So what, what you're it, touching on there seems to be the idea of you def, you set up and define yourself based on the context of the infrastructures and like social dynamics that you know your whole life, that you navigate your whole life. Mm -hmm. And then in something like in Deep Space Nine, where suddenly you're having these characters have to almost set up all the values and virtues of like that the franchise of Star Trek espouses to be when you know when it's not trying to sell you a goddamn NFT. Uh, <laughs> yes, I am still bitter. Yeah, um, yeah. But the all of those virtues being very much set up in the infrastructure that allows for that and then suddenly when you're there and you don't have that backup it is more difficult to say yes this is who i am because suddenly a key element of how you've defined yourself for so long is missing and you have to figure out who you are once that is gone mm -hmm. and a new century while what the world they live in has a whole lot less infrastructure that doesn't mean that there aren't at least some existing on a microscopic level or macroscopic level things that were perhaps set up after the Wendigo appeared or even just the memories of how things were before the Wendigo appeared. The memories that these characters have to draw on means that they are having to figure that stuff out. Yeah. And when you get right down to it, it's more impressive that these people are the people they are, the selfless people they are, the mm. people with heroic goals in mind that go beyond any kind of selfishness, that mm. they are able to retain that level of goodness mm. in a world that's dying. Yeah. That's more impressive. Mm. And, and what we see here is this moment where we in the the glorious in-between overlapping space between an idea on paper and the idea in action. Because for so long, Team Steam and the Steam Heart mission has been this idea that has been circulating Washington and people have been uh, sitting in cabinet meetings with smoking cigarettes wondering, what's what are we doing with this Steam Heart expedition? But... Here, now, it's not a ball, it's the actual, like, Steamheart is going, this is the start of the mission, so you get to feel as if you're starting something that actually has substance, mm. but you also have that rose-tinted glasses of feeling, it's the outset, it's the, I'm going on an adventure where Bilbo gets to 
feel quite exuberant and excited while he's still in the Shire, but once he actually ventures out, especially in the book, which Sarah and I have been uh, reading a few chapters here and there, and it is fascinating, the idea of just what I appreciate about some of the writing there is that you will have Bilbo just say, like, miss the little things, and mm. that feel that makes it feel charming but also very lived in as a as a world and as a journey so yeah uh here we get to see our crew go on an adventure and for now everything seems great what could possibly go wrong <laughs> yeah well we've got an entire three parts ahead of us so we'll see i mean well exactly. how many chapters are left great there can't be much room for stuff to go wrong in this book right 10 20, 30. We've uh -oh. got 30 chapters left. Ah, shit. This is the Elden Ring of New Century, isn't it? <laughs> we've been dealing with, we've been dealing with like the self-contained Demon Souls ones and it's like, well, it was a chore, but you know, we managed to get through it and oh no, this is like three or four stapled together, isn't it? Shit. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so during the course of uh, a, a duology of similar th bleh. during the course of a similar wow I'm having a problem talking and I don't I'm not even sick okay I'll Aha. try it again picture uh, about a year back <laughs> Alex and Sharon did a show specifically on two thematically similar movies <laughs> Deep Impact and Armageddon and they got into a deep discussion on the music framing those two movies, Armageddon especially. And as a result... Don't want to close my eyes. Don't well, not... want to fall asleep because I miss you, Greg. And I don't want to miss a thing. Did you plan that, or was that something that you just came up with? I'm always looking for an excuse to sing that at the drop of a hat. You just gave me the best opening. Okay, fair enough. Um, but in like, this you case, can hear Sarah; she's getting all choked up over there. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> in this case, it's the uh, it's the uh, cinematic score, the the um, soundtrack, not the uh, not not the licensed music that they had Aerosmith writing for them. Uh, My right. point is, is that uh, it gave an opportunity for Alex to talk about the parts that he wanted to include when he had um, Where the West Was Won commissioned uh, as being the theme music for Steamheart. And I honestly never really thought that deeply about any of the pieces for New Century thus far. I still have a great love for Agent in Shanghai, given that that was the piece mm. specifically for Tiger's Eye, which will it has been revisited in Steamheart, and I'm pretty sure that pieces of it <laughs> will definitely get used uh, in Panther Soul as well as other places in order to specifically denote mm. whenever Rao is in the picture. Whenever in Hral's not in the picture, everybody <laughs> should be asking, where's Hral? 
Uh, well, yeah, I can definitely tell you're feeling better. You're you are irrepressible, sir. I I guarantee that even when I was dying on the sofa the other day, like I have a witness here. When I was at like functioning at like three percent capacity, you know what I dedicated that three percent to? Jokes and japes and just being an, a prat. And Sarah was like, "Just stop doing it for the bit. You're like you're c- coughing and dying. It's like it's worth it." <laughs> I am a perpetual entertainer. I am. I cannot be stopped. I shan't be stopped. Well, if I can't stop you, then can you at least tell me? As the music was rising around the final narrated lines of chapter twelve, mm-hmm. how did it how did it feel to you as that during that magnificent surge in the soundtrack, what was going through your mind? What what did it picture for you? Well, what it pictured was it's a steam heart. This is awesome. Next question. Um, <laughs> no, the <clears throat> let me clear my throat, which is uh, more of a strain uh, these days. The departure music of Steamheart is soaring and weighty with mechanical momentum. The wind instruments, specifically what sounds like, I imagine, flute or recorder, which is blended with that cymbal trill, that sound that I can only describe as what happens when you lightly, repeatedly tap a drum's cymbals or brush against them, and it sounds like copper rain. It, all of that combines to create what I would describe as an upward gust of air. You feel freed from the doubts and apprehensions that made escape from them and the wider realities of this life seem out of reach, and the steady tick of strings that embody the wheels of Steamheart show that it is modern human ingenuity that makes that freedom and that hope possible. By the time the theme comes to an end, after the dramatic, tense bombast has explored all the hopes, all the dangers of the future and the strength to face them together, it winds down, coming back to that sound of the steady wheels of Steamheart, reliably and persistently moving forward stalwartly. See, that was so wonderful. I almost now don't want to uh, include <laughs> what Alex said about it. Because... Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, Alex will always ruin a good thing, won't he? <laughs> no, no. All I'm saying is, is that you uh, and when I when I splice this in, you'll you'll hear exactly um, what the the thematic resonance of the flute, as included in this um, in this piece, what it's meant to evoke. I have to admit that when I heard it the first time, I, I I feel like I actually needed to hear it in isolation almost in order to appreciate all aspects mm. of the piece because mm-hmm. it can be very easy for music to sometimes just sit a little bit too much in the background for me to pay full attention to it. Obviously... Yeah the words of the story, particularly Annie's words, are, or in this case, Abigail's words, 
too, because Abigail was the one narrating. It just happened to be that Annie was the one speaking out to the crowd and reintroducing our heroes to the population of DC. But on, on the entry of that final line, we were doing something right. And the way the music builds from that, all of a sudden, in the immediate moments afterwards, I just picture like a montage of all of them entering Steamheart finally, waving to the crowd, the hatches battening down, the wheels bringing to life, the that sp- very specific churn and hum as mm. everything sinks up in Steamheart and that magnificent vehicle moving into motion as the crowds are surrounding it. You can't hear the cheering in the background anymore because it's all just music, but that's the mental image that comes to mind as the music is playing and Steamheart is moving out of DC into the wilds beyond. It Mm. all combines with that overall hopeful idea there was an idea. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I've done that twice now in the two job. recordings. Yeah, exactly. Um, that this moment evokes. And as we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, there is something very... Like, in comparison to this moment, the reality of them actually being out on the road as serene as parts of it are, is almost a little bit of a letdown in comparison to this one big moment right here. So it's an interesting dichotomy that is weighed up. That like, okay, we've gotten to this point, here's what comes next. And as we'll Mm. get into, Abigail's thinking, oh, great. Now I'm stuck in this tin can, just like I was grousing about all during the april ball so yeah the the feeling of this moment is the feeling that you have in a lot of final fantasy games when you get the party together your purpose in like your broader mission statement is a bit more clear and you leave the starting area and you're in the overworld think Mm -hmm. ff7 when you finally leave Midgar and the overworld theme kicks in which has this like similar level of building up and hope exploding outwards into something that is sweeping hopeful a little well a lot apprehensive and all of that I and you're doing it with a collection of people who stand side by side together and you know, like you say, it it makes you feel like, wow, yeah, let's get out there, let's do it. And then the actual process is traveling down the road and every uh, eight seconds a random encounter happens and you have to figure out like, wow, oh, shit, who, okay, what's this week two? Okay, well, that, uh, shit, I had the materia on Tifa and she's not in the party. Uh, okay, one sec. Da, 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 da. Another encounter, cool. Um <laughs> But uh, for now, you feel you feel the Final Fantasy wallpaper like that. That's the mm-hmm. moment crystallized right there, and 
you need it. You need it because that's in any great expedition in any great project, you sort of have to keep this golden moment when your purpose was clear, when the whole path was before you and it felt like something that even if it would take time, it could be done. And you say, yeah, we can do that. Mm. And we also need that moment too because when we get to chapter 13 the first of part two we finally have this confrontation that we have been expecting now for i guess in some ways ever since the end of tiger's eye but Mm. was made all the more real when Miguel and Hrau re-entered our world, or excuse me, when they re-entered Century. Okay, so this is an important moment, and this is a very somber moment, but I have to just share this dumb visual that was in my head as you were saying, this is the thing that we have been expecting is, I was just thinking that Miguel gets in there and Francisco just goes, ah, Miguel, I've been expecting you. And then I thought, <laughs> actually, no, it would be the reverse. It would be Miguel with Crow just sort of like, ah, I've been expecting you. <laughs> just stroking Because no one can see this. The uh, Toby is doing the Blofeld stroking the the magnificent white cat thing from uh, from James Bond. Um, oh God, I have no idea if that's going to if this is going to go into outtakes or not. Um, it feels like we've already disrupted the main flow. Well, of, uh, that decision leaves with you, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. Miguel is here to reconcile his past, even as Rao is coming to terms with her choice to leave her world. That is the overall tenor for this chapter. And as we begin, the confrontation between Miguel and Francisco has such weight to it. The fact that he is so far beyond the cowardly schemer able to move with confidence to face him with the same, grown so much in a mere three months. Francisco tries to deal with Miguel as he would have in the past, unaware of just how irrelevant he has become. Miguel re-enters his life, causes chaos, and leaves of his own accord, showing agency at every step of the way. Even able now to remember for certain how Francisco betrayed his mother. Even though back in the previous book, that memory was clouded. This scene is powerful, full of complex emotion, but also resolution. He was never going to return to be with his father. Only to look in his eyes and see for himself that this man no longer has power for him. Hmm. The scene showing Miguel's encounter with Francisco is one that simultaneously feels surreal, but also immediate in its clarity and in this moment. Francisco's change in situation and circumstance is disorientating and bewildering. Miguel has only been gone for, what, a couple of months? And mm, three months. It, 
and yet it feels as if he's returning on a you know a comparable scene to Flight of the Navigator, where the child protagonist in that film endures similar disruptions to his mundane life through fantastic means and finds he's been gone for a decade or so. But Francisco changes his situation with a rapidity that makes the passage of time more or less irrelevant. Miguel was gone for a time, and whether that was for five years, four months, or one week, Francisco is shown to have no attachments to Miguel's presence in his life, and lets nothing stop him from moving forward and seizing opportunity. Yeah, in point of fact, the way everything seems to be laid out, the second Miguel disappears from his life, Miguel's disappearance is merely an opportunity to capitalize on in order to acquire what he refers to as his new family. Mm. And with space and time and the right support, Miguel has everything he could need to see the way of things with perfect clarity. His life is no longer defined by having Francisco in it. He has seen for himself that not only can he survive without him, but he, in fact, thrives and improves without him. Mm. And with that in mind, he can let himself face the terrible conclusions of just how little he matters to his father and that Francisco abandoned Miguel's mother to her death. And rather than be terrified at the implications that, as he might have done, been terrified before because he would have thought he had, he didn't have anywhere else to go. Miguel instead accepts these realizations here, hears Francisco's assertions, and takes the ultimate move of agency and steps out of Francisco's life forever. It is a passing on his terms, and it is and it is as and it as good as erases Francisco from this story. That's how powerful a move it is on Miguel's part. The uh, One of those uh, lost epilogues to this chapter had Alex note that Francisco's part in this story is ended, that feel free to invent whatever ending you like wish for him, which is just this kind of move of the author's part set, uh, definitively saying this character is no longer relevant here because like the characters we are invested in and care about they're done with him Mm. and in a world of stories that's the way to just fundamentally remove them it's that just go uh, line which Mm. i return to so often from tiger's eye which is that sometimes when we feel pain and hurt and injustice we feel that what we need is for the the perpetrator to feel similar pain for them to if they're going to continue existing in this world with us that they at least suffer as they have made us suffer but i think a lot of the time what we really need when we're just so sick and tired of something or someone is not for it to be drawn out or to just sit with it. It's for it to just go. There was a small black humor joke 
being bandied around <laughs> about the idea. The reason why Crow wasn't present when Miguel returned is that she had been lurking in the background, and the second he left, she just sort of nipped over, knocked on the door, and bit Francisco's head off when he answered. Um, yeah, that, that is the abiding theory, and I am not inclined to disagree with it. But to be perfectly honest, as much as I agree with your overall thesis that we just want him to just dissolve, like like someone snapping their fingers and he turns into ash Thanos style. Mm. But we definitely hope from the note on which Miguel leaves that that woman that asked him whether Francisco told him to go, that she sees through exactly how small a man Francisco is and that he will not be able to do further harm to them as well. We mm. have enough empathy for the situation that we hope that Francisco ends up utterly mm. abandoned and at the very least cannot harm anyone else anymore the way he has harmed so many others. The the ending I honestly feel that Francisco would head down is that this won't last, uh, mm. whether it's through his own like self-sabotage or through Miguel just sort of leaving just enough so that this woman who does not seem like a bad person mm. and we don't know much about her let alone her sons and her own family but we feel as if they can probably like move beyond yeah Francisco and the one thing we know is that Francisco has left a trail of people who like he like has pissed off or yeah, there are debtors. Even if a giant tiger didn't come and bite his head off, I get the feeling that there are plenty enough people who are pursuing him. Mm. That eventually, like, there's there's a character in Adventure Time who has a similar, like, setup, who I think uh, says this line that embodies Francisco as well, is that if you burn enough bridges, the only way to move is forward. And that's, I think, that what Francisco does. But the problem with that mentality is if you do that for too long, then you'll just end up being cornered mm. because you've walked into a corner and whoops, you burned the bridge like after you crossed it. Now you have nowhere to go and everything catches up and collapses down on you. That was one of the running themes at one point where Francisco specifically has a fear of being cornered. There are specific places that he doesn't want to go to, as I recall, in uh, Miguel's early chapters in Tiger's Eye, um, which is why he is always running and running and running. But mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely get what you mean with that. Let's stop talking about him. He doesn't exist anymore. So yep. just exactly like Van Tassel, although we also know what happened to Van Tassel after the April ball. So mm. Batman Ro killed him. <laughs> I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> Do it. I dare you. Crow, <laughs> <sighs> meanwhile, has both the mirror image of Miguel's sickness while in Rama, 
but also an experience that reinforces our earlier assertion that the two carry a bubble of Rama with them into this world. Her experience speaking to the father of passing and the fire lion harkens to the ideas presented in, say, Neil Gaiman's American Gods, wherein representations of the old world gods were brought to America by the myriad peoples that settled it. As we see Fire Lion's depiction as Hrau understands him, one can understand why Miguel will later refer to the deity as Lion Jesus. The image of the sun behind his head... Yeah, that's Aslan. <laughs> I mean, fair, but Aslan doesn't exist for the purposes of this story. So, <laughs> my point is, the when Alex is describing Fire Lion with the image of the sun behind his head and the enormous mane-like flowing locks of quote-unquote human hair, it's all very emblematic of traditional Jesus depictions. Meanwhile, the father of passing is a patient avatar of death, no malice, merely waiting in the shadows to see if he is needed. And we do not know if they are real or mere hallucinations of Rao's sickness, and it does not matter. They give Rao what she needs in this moment of vulnerability, unsure if she made the right choice. Well, having gone through my own set of delirious uh, sickness-induced uh, passing in and out of sleep recently, I can tell you that the father of passing and was there in the corner, and Fire, uh, Fireland did help me with that, so uh, props <laughs> to him. Um, but what I love in all seriousness about the gods of Rama, or at least the gods that we see Durga tribe put mm -hmm. stock into, is that they are an embodiment of the elemental. Yes, I do mean that in the sense of the traditional elements, as these deities are associated in their titles, not with human personality traits of or concepts like mischief, war, love, etc., but instead with fire, water, air, and yes, death. It helps a considerable deal in conveying the comfort that Hrau would draw in this moment of vulnerable sickness and restoration. Her consciousness resides itself not with the myriad complex thoughts and concepts that we wrap our heads around as we navigate and participate in the world around us, but instead with the calm simplicity of recognizing death as it is, no more, no less, and feeling the warmth and life of fire as the counter to that. Mm. It's a spiritual and vulnerable place to be, but I think it is nevertheless a reprieve for the tiger who has traveled to another world and is still panicking and trying to figure out what her life is and what's next for her. No matter what, even after all that she felt towards this pantheon during her loss of her first cub, where she essentially like dismissed them from reputed her life, them. Yeah. reputed them, yeah, she still has this connection to the gods as she understands and interprets them. They're not overstepping and encroaching on her life and demanding her servant as her service to them, but there when she needs them and supporting her when she doesn't seek them out. 
which I think is a, from a personal point of view, is a really brilliant view of such concepts. So, yeah. I don't really... As someone that has always been very grounded into the pure realm of thought or into simple taking in of what's going in around my senses, I don't really completely understand what it means to have faith in the supernatural, to see gods or God in the natural world around me. But, and I also don't know how gods or the great cats experience with gods, how that works for them in their daily lives, outside of their prayers that they hope the seven receive when they need them. But there is something there is something in the way that the gods appear to her even after everything that's happened, even after her repudiation, even after leaving Rama altogether, Mm. that they are still with her and they appear to her mm. as if almost as if they were a representation of the fact that she is starting to live again even mm. in this place now where her actual physical life is somewhat in question whether she will actually recover from this sickness or at the very least the fact that Hrau doesn't know if she will get beyond this sickness because when you're sick as you'd be able to tell it's hard to remember what it feels like when you were well and everything yeah. like that but Ew. this is hitting too close to home yeah <laughs> um i but, uh... but yeah it's just it... it's almost as if you know and I, I, I know that that popular uh story about you know the footprints in the sand and you know asking god there were times when there were only one set of footprints in the sand where were you when that happened and the response is carrying your fat ass (laughs) yeah yeah i was carrying you um and to someone who the gods are still a significant part of her upbringing, this is what Rao needs to hear right now, that the gods are here for her <laughs> in whatever form they are needed. Mm. And without really wanting to sort of suggest that like the like Rao's journey is made valid because she refines her faith Mm. it's Mm. much more i think a case of the place we see her in at the start of tiger's eye she feels as if she's not really 
inhabiting the world. She is mm. not present in this world. She is just going through the paces, doing, like, just doing so much, throwing herself so much into her work that she is, like, delivering more food than they could possibly need. And as a result, it just feels as if she is doing her prayers in a functional way, where it's just a, I'm doing this, I'm navigating. And so she goes from not feeling as if she is a part of this world, her world, Rama, to now she is, we've talked about how Miguel and Frau essentially bring Rama with them. And in this moment, we are seeing that her connection with the gods that she has brought with them, that we are seeing these deities exist in a sort of spiritual trans-dimensional capacity overlapping with you know, Centrum and the world that she finds herself in now, it shows that she has not only reconnected with her life and her surroundings and who she is and who she associates herself with, what we were talking about earlier on about you define yourself by the infrastructures that you live and develop memories within mm. well this is what is happening here she's kind of gone from living very much in the present to now she gets to live in not just today in in fact that that's kind of Frau's journey is that she goes from just saying it is today to being able to see it in all capacities of yesterday today and tomorrow mm. being able to manage excuse me being able to imagine a tomorrow yeah and face yesterday mm -hmm. in mm. point of fact that's that that was <laughs> that was an incredible uh unintended segue into our very last talk was it unintended greg <laughs> well i mean we are working off the same outline here so i guess i can't put it above you to say that you were you were deliberately trying to like okay here's the line here's the line go on and do the next thing greg <laughs> what all according to plan what i was leading into is that the final words of this chapter once more leave us with powerful implications for the future Rao says, what would I be like after tomorrow? And this makes me think of the speech Agent K gives to Jay in Men in Black. In making yet another choice that leads to uncertainty rather than every day, same as the last with Durga Tribe, she allows herself to ponder the weight of who she has become, who she will become, now that she is freed from the trauma that kept her in stasis. Once more, this is Frau's version of what we pondered before about nothing ending. She finally has a future. It may be scary, but it is far better than the alternative. Hmm. I couldn't really put it any better than that. These moments of illness mixed with a key decision slash the potential turning point for a character they often feel symbolic of a metamorphosis taking place. Think Zuko in the second season of Avatar, just after he's released Appa and the question is finally raised if capturing the Avatar is something he should really be committing to anymore. 
it's a direct way of saying that something big is shifting internally within a protagonist, but it certainly encapsulates the principle of character growth. You go through something challenging and painful and have the capacity to come out of it changed and potentially for the better. Did you say something challenging and painful? Uh, you go through something challenging and painful and have the capacity to come out of it changed and potentially for the better. Okay, good. Thank you for repeating that because I thought you might have said something different instead of challenging, like it was some variation on changed and repeating the word just sort of like stuck in my craw a little bit. Sure. I think I didn't intend this. But there is once more, my, my brain is seeing these patterns, something incredibly synchronistic about the fact that you brought up Avatar, because I know that this was one of your first entry points to listening to Alex and Sharon on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I yes. am finally listening to the first of the, the, the first podcast they did on uh, The Last Airbender. All oh, the sure. way back, yeah, all the way back huh. in the days of digital Gonzo. Oh, that's ancient. I'll tell you exactly when I listened to that. That would have been something like either early 2012 or late 2011. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. You were you you were a little baby when you were listening to that then. Yeah, <laughs> I was. Uh, Let's see, um, 2012, I was 18, and I mean, I, I've shared the story about, about how um, when The Hobbit was first coming out, they were doing their Lord of the Rings shows, but mm. that was like, uh, that was the time when I listened to that with my brother on the train ho ride home after mm -hmm. the day we heard news that dad had passed away. So uh, yeah, no, that it's, it's been a journey. It's been quite a it's been quite a ride for old Toby <laughs> Skills Young, yes. <laughs> but yeah, it, just in terms of so I've I've only listened to a little bit of it right now and I'm sort of trying to recapture the experience that I had with The Last Airbender. Um <coughs> but you bring up Zuko. <laughs> And the whole evolving relationship between him and Iroh was always one of the things that I enjoyed the most about that particular story. And mm. so therefore, all of a sudden, I can imagine that Fire Lion coming to Harau is not a little bit unlike Iroh tending to Zuko during his darkest, most despairing moments mm -hmm. to simply be there for the young man. And so I can see um, what you're talking about in terms of that there is always tends to be great pain before big changes and everything like that. But you can, as you say, come out better <laughs> on the other side. Hmm. One of the very, one of the very fast thing, one of the very last things that I remember hearing from the Avatar show, um, as I was driving home from the doctor today, 
was that um, that Zuko gets one of the most clearly defined arcs in the story. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. the the amount of stuff that he had, the amount of pain that he has to go through, and in order to become a, a better person, one could almost draw certain parallels between his journey and Rao's journey, even mm-hmm. though. Zuko is a, a different kind of character and far darker and bitterer when we first see him in those early chapters of the show. He is also a person in stasis to a certain degree. So mm. he also has Trapped to in over- his own iceberg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Um, well, you know, like, you're wondering to me if, like, oh, like, how much is, uh, like, Avatar The Last Airbender, like, perpetual my thought? Let me show you, like, what I see that's stuck to my laptop every time I open it. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant, mm. sir. I love it. This tea is nothing but hot leaf juice. Uncle, that's what all tea is. I can't believe someone in my family would say something so awful. <laughs> uh, now I want some tea. Not because my throat's sore, just because I want some tea. I haven't had mm. I haven't had a good cup of tea in a while. You and my friend need some sweet, soothing jasmine tea. <laughs> it's easier to do the voice after a few days of COVID uh, going to town in your throat. Yeah, yeah. Or harder? I don't know. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end for now. Mm. We're going to have several of those chapters coming up in short order as we actually see the journey that our heroes are undertaking on Steamheart. I have part of the outline done, and the only thing that I find myself frustrated with more than anything else is the fact that we now have to talk about Steamheart without the context of Princess Thieves, which means that, once more, there are things we can't talk about. Nope. What's that cameo? Oh, we you don't know about that one yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, I don't know. As I, as I put it together, I may decide to have a small bit where we actually talk about uh, implications that are meant to be drawn from the princess thieves that we yeah. put behind spoiler tags and be like, just skip ahead to the next point. If you mm-hmm. haven't partaken of this, uh, of this book yet, um, mm-hmm. because I, I, I don't like the idea of not being able to talk about it at all. I think it's fair to say that when we get to that particular moment, we can say this is like, she is connecting with someone who, comes to be very important in princess thieves Mm. that by the time that this was written like people reading this will have known about it even though the author and we kind of sort of recommend that princess thieves works well as an opener to the second phase Mm. it's just it's part of the wibbly wobbly timey wimey like order of uh new century so uh it's it's all fine yeah it's all fine I'm fine. You're fine. Debatable. <laughs> you you will you will you will be fine. You will come closer to fine, uh, <laughs> as you might say, through my uh, perpetual um, musical love, the Indigo Girls. 
Maureen mm. is fine. She is starting her new yes. job today. Congratulations to Maureen, the purple tiger. As what will she be tomorrow? Employed. <laughs> the way you just said that too, it just makes me think of that one line from um, Adam's Family Values. Isn't he the lady killer? Acquitted. <laughs> Uh, oh, I gotta thank- watch those films again. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> Raul Julia is a treasure, and we will miss him terribly. Mm. And thank you, listeners, for uh, allowing us to entertain you once more, even as Toby and his wife are recovering from their bout of sickness. But by the time you hear us next, hopefully everyone should be doing well on our next trip through the wind door. Take care. Hey. <laughs> we did it. We did it. That was like fair. I yeah. I can do this with one arm tied behind my back and five <laughs> days of COVID under my shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, perfect. That was excellent. I will uh, catch up with you in more detail uh, very soon. I'm going to head off now because uh, I think we're going to catch up with Sarah's parents, but oh, okay. other like not in person uh, over the phone. We are very responsible. Um, today is technically the first day that on sort of government sort of recommended guidelines and things, mm-hmm. which is laughable. Uh, yeah. You've you've heard of our government. Um, yeah, I've heard about but, your government. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we hear about them too much. Um, but uh, we, Sarah, technically could uh, go out today. We did a test. She was still showing a teeny bit of uh, positive. So mm-hmm. we're giving it a bit more time. I'm continuing to stay indoors because I, I, I had a thicker line. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, that, there, this is just one way where I am described as thick. Um, that's... <laughs> I hope that didn't come across as dirty. I don't know. It's late in the evening. I'm delirious. It's here we are. We're here we are. And I'm okay. I'm rambling. See, I lasted just as just long enough to do the thing. My wife is coughing. I'm delirious. It's all fun and games here. We. It's late in the evening. Now the music's seeping through. <laughs> Uh, musical way to close the show. Yeah, exactly. This this is the kind of stuff I get into all the time with Maureen. Something she says makes me think of song lyrics, and I'm often singing. So, you know... We we are simpatico in that we are human jukeboxes, where it's just your sort of input-output. You're just... (laughs) I I, I use the, like, excuse to put an Aerosmith in here, you know? Like... (laughs) Well, all my right. best to all of you, including poor Apple. And uh, yeah. I'll talk to We've, you soon. Yeah, no, Apple continues to do well. We've seen enough of him like poking up and being fine. He's well fed, but uh, we're just keeping our distance. All right. <laughs> all right, I'm going. Bye. Peace. Bye-bye.